don't feel like death anymore. Well, I do, but not as death as I did last week. Are you ready? Not really. No. Are you ready for me to come and see you, though? Oh, yeah. I thought you meant are you ready to learn about the mountain family, and I was like, no, because they fucking freak me out. (laughs) I don't get why this freaks you out over anything else. I don't know. I think it's because I learned about it when I was so young, and, like... I always have this like irrational fear that someone's trying to get into my house. I've literally never felt like that. I don't think I've ever been like, who the fuck's that coming through? Maybe that's just because I don't care about being murdered. Well, no, it's so irrational because I've never like, it sounds very naive, but I've never been broken into or anything like that. So it's not like I've no, but you know what I mean? Like, if that if that had happened, I could understand why I have a fear of that. Although, do you remember when our house got broken in, in at uni? <laughs> Which time? No, oh, yeah, <laughs> twice. So, I was actually talking about the second time when we lived in, on Thoday Street when they stole Megan's bike. Do you remember? Yeah, there were two times in that house. Oh, I was talking about home? the time that I woke up, and then the other time was the time that I woke everyone up thinking that we had a burglar and then no one was there. So I hear, I heard this fucking smash. I swear, I swear. This house was creepy anyway. We were convinced there were squatters next door. Yeah, and I'm to this day I'm convinced someone smashed. They must have smashed a window next door or something because I thought, oh my fucking god, someone smashed a window. Like they're breaking in. I Mm. was so sure it was so loud. And then I was ringing everyone. No one's picking up. And then I finally rang Megan, who lived down, who was like asleep downstairs, and she picked up. And I was like, there's someone in the house. Getting that call. Cool. alarm you, but we might be getting killed. There is someone in the house. She's like, What the fuck? So, one by one, we woke everyone up, and then we were all awake apart from Lydia, who lived upstairs on the third floor in like, the attic. And then we all went up there. We were like, Lydia, so, yeah. <laughs> is there someone in your room? You were like, Well, I fucking hope not. <laughs> well, no, that wasn't even it, right? So, I woke up. So, I used to have wooden floors. We all had wooden floors anyway. Mm. But I was quite prone to like knocking my phone off the bed while I'm asleep so that yeah. would crash the floor. And, and I remember gal, that. Your gal lived di- slept directly below her, <laughs> her. So I know. She well, used to drop her phone on the floor every fucking night. <laughs> well, so I remember that happening because it like it roused me a little bit. But then I went back asleep. And the next thing I know, you know, when you get that feeling that there's just something watching you while you're asleep. I had that and I woke up and the four of you are just stood over my bed. I thought it was some satanic ritual or something. <laughs> and you were just stood over my bed and you were like, is there someone in your room? I'm like, well, you four are, so what am I supposed to be doing? <laughs> I hope I'm not going to be killed. Because I had like weird little cubby holes and stuff, didn't I? Like, Yeah, and there's no way I was going to sleep after that again. No way. Yeah. But yeah, so in third year... There were two incidents, wasn't there? So we got home from the cinema and our back door and our back gate were open and our housemate was in her bedroom. So we thought maybe she's left it open herself, like she's taken the bins out or whatever. Turns out she was in the shower, which was downstairs, and she heard the back door open and thought it was us, like shouted at us to say that she'd like be out of the shower in a second and the back door like slammed again, didn't it? So we think it was it was the person who stole her bike that night who was trying to get into the house. Oh, that's creepy. I don't really remember that. 
Yeah. But and then another time we came home from the pub and there were homeless people in our back garden lighting up drugs on our picnic bench and the lads went out with like rolling what the night that we all went to the pub yeah yeah so i have a rational fear of people breaking into my house probably shouldn't announce this on the internet i mean they don't know where you live well <laughs> um and yeah it's just always creeped me out another thing that's creeped me out is the footage of the three girls co- coming to and from the court and they're like singing and skipping and stuff like that. Like they're just crazy. Yeah, that picture, mm. that picture of them with the fucking crosses yeah. carved into their head. That does freak me out a bit. It's fucking creepy. That is true. Like my brother never knew about like the girls, how they acted in court. I showed him a video and he was like, "That is the creepiest thing I've ever seen." Yeah, but they were they were brainwashed, weren't they? Yeah, but still, like mm. they also brutally murdered people. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. The fucking, these murders are fucking violent. Shit. And the fact that they just like sat there and were like laughing and giggling and stuff, like they had no remorse for I wonder what they're up to them. now. They're still in prison. Oh, I was going to say, do you reckon they like, do you reckon they live like in a detached house with a picket fence and oh, take no. their kids to, co- to school? No. School I know two of, them, two of them are still in prison, definitely. No. Unless they're dead now, I don't know, but... But yeah, so little insight to Lydia's fears. <laughs> There's many more to come. <laughs> just so this doesn't creep you out at all. Uh, no, because it's just America, isn't it? <laughs> well, well, you don't expect any even less, do you? You just, you just like British shit like this in England. But you don't do every single case study we've looked at at cults is American. Because they're yeah, all, sorry, true. this, I don't want to sound like a dickhead, but they're yeah. just idiots. But do you reckon it is just an American thing or it's just that American crime is so dramatised? Is that the word? I don't like, know, but I also mean? think that like the time that this was happening, like the drugs that people were taking, the like yeah, hallucinogenic yeah. drugs and like people would have kind of lost like the 60s in America, mm-hmm. like I don't know, it's easy to pick out vulnerable teenagers and brainwash them, I think. Yeah. I mean, these cult leaders, I think it's just time and place, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Should we get into it then? Yeah, go on. So the Manson family was a desert commune and cult led by Charles Manson that was active in California in late 1960s and early 1970s. The group consisted of approximately 50 of his followers who lived an unconventional lifestyle with habitual use of hallucinogenic drugs, such as LSD. Most of the group members were young women from middle-class backgrounds, many of whom were radicalised by Manson's teachings and drawn by the hippie culture and commune living of that time. So Charles Manson was born to 16-year-old Kathleen Maddox in Cincinnati, Ohio. Many describe his upbringing as particularly grim. A short time after his birth, his mother went to jail for armed rob- well, attempted armed robbery and he was sent to live with relatives in West Virginia. One report of his childhood stated that at the age of six, he found it difficult to get along with a particular boy in his class. One day, the teacher witnessed a group of girls from the same class attacking this boy, later stating that Manson had told them to do it. 
When, he confr- when confronted, however, Manson calmly stated that he didn't tell anyone to attack the boy, and if they did it, they did it because they wanted to. Which is creepy as fuck. Oh my and god, we'll swing right back to that, won't we, at the trial? So, right? Fucking but, hell. I should say that I only found this in one documentary, so and they didn't say who the story came from, so yeah. whether it's true or not, or... Yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was interesting, and it does fit in with later... Yeah, very. Like, if you're that, that manipulative when you're older, you're going to have learned it from a young age, aren't you? Hmm. So in his teen years, he committed a string of petty crimes, and after he robbed two grocery stores at the age of 13, he was sent to an all-boys school, which was like juvenile detention centre, but it wasn't juvenile. It was like an all-boys school where they were taught to be proper young gentlemen. Uh, like a borstal. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was sort of like a way of just giving them a second chance. Yeah, yeah. They learned how to live correctly. Mm. So despite having a high IQ, he was illiterate and deemed aggressively antisocial by professionals. In October 1951, he was sent to a minimum security institute until he was paroled almost three years later. The next year, in 1955, he married waitress Rosalie Jean Willis, with whom he had a son, Charles Jr., after Manson was set back to prison, the couple divorced. He was paroled in 1958, but soon returned to prison for attempting to cash a forged cheque. So he was released in March 1967 and moved to San Francisco, like many people at that time. Ooh. Manson was charismatic with an almost hypnotic ability to manipulate. In the beginning, he preached a free love philosophy that included some of the religious ideas that he studied in prison. And that's where he got, like, his ideas from, just, like, conjoining everything together, if that makes sense. Interesting. Mansonology. Mm. Mm. Following his release from prison on March 21st, 1967, Charles Manson moved to San Francisco, where, with the help of a prison acquaintance, he moved, instead, into an apartment in Berkeley. Living mostly by begging, Manson soon became acquainted with Mary Brenner, a 23-year-old graduate. Brenner was working as a library assistant at the University of California, Berkeley, and Manson moved in with her. According to a second-hand account, he overcame her resistance to his bringing other women in to live with them, and before long, they were sharing Mary's home with 18 other women. Busy man! Busy, busy man! Fucking hell! Manson established himself as a guru in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district, which during the 1967's Summer of Love, quote, was emerging as a signature for hippie locale. Manson appeared to have borrowed his philosophy from the Process Church of the Final Judgment, whose members believed that Satan would become reconciled to Christ and they would come together at the end of the world to judge humanity. Manson soon had the first of his group of followers, which have been called the Manson family, most of them being female. In 1967, Brunner became pregnant by Manson and on April 15, 1968, she gave birth to a son that she named Valentine Michael in a condemned house in Topanga Canyon. Towards the end of the summer of 1967, Manson and some of his followers packed into a converted school bus and travelled around the US partying and doing drugs. Sounds like a great summer if you ask me. I mean, not bad. (laughs) No drugs though, drugs are bad. Yeah, don't do drugs, kids. 
In the late spring of 1968, Manson formed a brief relationship with Beach Boys singer Dennis Wilson. While Wilson was driving around Southern California, he picked up two of Manson's followers who were hitchhiking and brought them to his house. The next day, Wilson returned home to find Manson in his driveway. Inside, a dozen of Manson followers occupied the house. Wilson was fascinated by Manson and allowed the group to stay in his home. Over the next few months, the number of people staying in Wilson's house almost doubled and he paid up to $100,000 on food, clothing and anything else to make themselves a part of his house. This included a large medical bill for treatment of their gonorrhea God. and $21,000 for the destruction of his uninsured car, which they borrowed permanently, permanently borrowed it. Wilson was impressed with Manson's musical talent and the two wrote a few songs together. Wilson would sing and talk with Manson while the women were treated as servants to them both. He paid for studio time to record the songs written and performed by Manson and introduced him to a number of acquaintances in the entertainment industry. One of the contacts included Doris Day's son, Terry Melcher, who owned the home Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski rented. Melcher, however, didn't advance Manson's career as much as Manson had hoped and expected. Soon, Manson's violent tendencies and volatile personality began to make Wilson uncomfortable. Wilson moved out of his rented home when the lease expired, and his landlord had the authorities evict Manson and his followers in August 1968. Wow. Wow, what interesting turn of events. This has got nothing to do with the Manson family, right? But you know Roman Polanski? Yeah. He's now living in France. Because he's been on the run from the American police for drugging and raping a thirteen-year-old in like Stop the eighteen. Honestly, how the tables turn, huh? Honestly, I but I just thought that was very interesting. So after being evicted from Wilson's home, the group established a base for themselves in the deteriorating remains of a Western movie set in the San Fernando Valley called Spawn Ranch. It had been a television and movie set for westerns, but the buildings had deteriorated by the late 1960s, and the ranch's revenue primarily derived from selling horseback rides. Family members did chores around the ranch and occasionally had sex with on Manson's orders with the nearly blind 80-year-old owner, George Spahn. I mean, who wants to pay You know what's funny? Have you watched... Um... What's that? The Quentin Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. Because they do that in the film and yeah. they're on the like movie set in the film. Yeah, and I've yeah. never like before this, I didn't really know, like I knew the Mansons. I knew Charles Manson, mm. but I didn't really know any of this stuff. And it's yeah. it's funny because now I just picture it in my head. It's just it's the Brad film Pitt, set. Brad Pitt strolling on being like, some girls just shagging some old man. It's yeah. weird. So the woman, the women also acted as seeing eye guides for him. In exchange, Spahn allowed Manson and his group to live at the ranch for free. While at the ranch, the group became closer and started calling themselves the Manson family. They lived a communal life, regularly engaging in orgies and dropping LSD, as you do. The family was based at Spahn Ranch for most of 1968 and 1969, their numbers, and their numbers continued to grow. Charles Tex Watson, a college dropout from Texas, joined the group. He met Manson at Wilson's house and Watson had given Wilson a ride while Wilson was hitchhiking after his car was wrecked. 
That's a lot of W names. There. A lot. So Manson met Tex at Wilson's house, and Tex gave Wilson a ride while yeah. Wilson was hitchhiking after his car was wrecked. Okay, cool. Tex was later described as Manson's Cree's right hand man. So there's not much he wouldn't do. As we will find out. At the beginning of November 1968, Manson found alternative headquarters in Death Valley's environs, an unused ranch named Barker. This was owned by an elderly local woman, Arlene Barker. Manson presented himself and a male family member as musicians in need of a place congenial to their work. In December 1968, Manson visited a friend in Topanga Canyon who played him the newly released Beatles White Album. Manson became obsessed with the Beatles, convinced that the songs contained hidden messages that warned him of an impending disaster. Manson believed he knew what the disaster would be. Also, he was introduced to the Beatles while he was in prison, so like... Also, also, (laughs) I didn't realise that Manson was so obsessed with the Beatles. This must have hit their reputation kind of hard when this all went down. Um, Do you not think? I don't think it did. The Beatles, were probably, would... the Beatles were probably just there like, uh, we don't know this guy. Yeah, like, I don't really... Obviously, it probably would have impacted them knowing that he chose their song as, like, instantly. He's like, hey, I fucking but... killed a bunch of people because you told me to in your song. Yeah. Like, he was he was known as being crazy from the get-go, do you know what I mean? So it's not like they had any sort of responsibility. Yeah, I guess. Or... I mean, you just need to look at the girls. Yeah, that's what I mean. Across this fucking drawn into end, the picture of Manson trying to defend, what was he trying to defend himself in court? Like, be his own lawyer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's carrying in all his little paperwork. With a cross cut into his forehead, and the Beatles are like, ah, I'm number one fan. Yeah. That's a good guy. We never would have got where we were without him. But no, he was convinced that when he was first introduced to them in prison, um, he was convinced that he could do better as well. Okay, but I am also convinced that All About You by McFly is about me. That's for me. They wrote that for me. Oh, There's no so other explanation. <laughs> For a while, Manson had been saying that racial tensions between blacks and whites were about to erupt, predicting that blacks would rise up in rebellion in America's cities. Wow. Fucking deja vu. What did they expect? On New Year's Eve, as the group gathered around the campfire at Spahn Ranch, Manson warned the members that the tensions between black and white Americans were growing and that African Americans would soon rise up in rebellion. He claimed that the whites were doomed due to the split between racist and non-racist whites. Um, Okay, (laughs) that's what you think, babe. In early January 1969, the family left the desert and moved to a canary yellow home in Canonga Park? Canoga. Canoga Park. Canoga Park. Not far from Spahn Ranch. Because this locale would allow the group to remain submerged beneath the awareness of the outside world. Manson called it the Yellow Submarine. Another Beatles reference. I fucking love that song. The fucking original, Manson. We are living in the Yellow Submarine. That song absolutely slaps. That's such a good song. <laughs> what, a, what an absolute bop. 
Um, in the Yellow Submarine, family members prepared for the impending apocalypse, which around the campfire Manson had termed Helter Skelter. Uh, yeah, that's another song. I just, I mean, also the cheeriness of Yellow Submarine to then you preparing for the apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? They're all around the campfire, they're like, we are leaving Yellow Submarine, but they're going to kill other people. They're going to fucking kill lots of people, and it's going to be really great. <laughs> is it really bad that we laugh about this? But it's just like, it is crazy. bad, but it's like, <laughs> are you fucking mental? Are you? Well, yes. Oh, yeah. The answer is yes, you are. Okay. By February, Manson's vision was complete. The family would create an album whose songs, as subtle as those of the Beatles, would trigger the predicted chaos. Ghastly murders of whites by blacks would be met with retaliation, and a split between racist and non-racist whites would yield white self-annihilation. Oh, got that. So, this he's not a racist. I mean... You can say say what you want about Charles Manson, but he loves black people and white people. He doesn't care. You think? I don't know. Because I, he's trying I, to... I feel like I, I read somewhere, and it wasn't doing the research for this, but he was attacked quite a lot in prison by black men, like, raped. And that's where, that's where his, like, hatred comes from, and that's why he thinks, like, all black people or evil, whatever. Oh well, maybe he's a massive racist then. I've totally... Oh, no. I do I do think he's a massive I've racist. I've totally read that wrong. But he wants the Blacks to triumph. No, he's he's preparing for their triumph. Like, he's saying that the Whites will have no other, other thing to do other than retaliate and put the Blacks in their places. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Because white people are split between racist and non-racist, they can't. In his mind, they can't get their shit together to sort the blacks out. So he wants them all to be racist. Yeah. And then he's going to be on the top with mm-hmm. a little crown. Yeah. So his idea is that all the whites will be dead because the blacks will have risen up, and only his group will have survived. And he's going to have Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Sat next to him on the throne, yeah, <laughs> on the uh, the Iron Throne. <laughs> Ringo on the drums in the background. <laughs> oh god. <clears throat> um, the Blacks' triumph, as it were, would merely precede their being ruled by the family, which would ride out the conflict in the bottomless pit, a secret city beneath Death Valley. At the Canoga Park House, while family members worked on vehicles and pored over maps to prepare for the, their desert escape, they also worked on songs for their world-changing album. I mean, I just... Are these guys fucking stupid? Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even... I literally am speechless. When they were told Terry Melcher would come to the house to hear the material, the women prepared a meal and cleaned the house. However, Melcher never arrived. So as we said before, Terry Melcher lived at... Um, I always get confused how Americans pronounce the numbers of their houses. So I'm pretty sure it's pronounced 10050. No fucking way. No, it is. 150. I know it's not 10,050, but it's got to be... 
Maybe it's 10.050. That sounds right. Let's go with that. 10.050. Where does Moucher live? Well, he used to live at um, the house that Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski now rent. And that was the property that Manson knew of Terry Melcher living at. So my idea is that when Melcher stood him up for dinner, he's gone to the property to confront him. Gotcha. So Manson entered 10.050, let's just go with that, Celia Drive, uninvited on March the 23rd, 1969 which he had known as Terry Melcher's home, as I've said. However, Melcher had, was only the previous tenant, and the na- new tenants were now Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. Manson was met by... Oh, his <laughs> yeah, good luck with that one. Sharoka? Sharoka Hatami. Yeah, a friend of Sharon and Roman's. He was there to photograph Tate before her departure for Rome the next day. He had seen Manson through the window as he approached the main house and had gone onto the front porch to ask him what he wanted. I should say as well, the house, this house was at the top of a hill. So the main road going up was like a massive incline anyway, where all the houses were dotted. And it came to like a cul-de-sac. Like how it is on... um, once upon a time in Hollywood. So it's that cul-de-sac and then you've got the driveway gate and then it's up another hill. Yeah. So it's like right at the top. Mm. So he would have had to climb the gate to get onto that driveway. Okay. I don't think it would have been that they just leave it open for anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, he's gained access without being invited. Essentially. So Manson told him that he was looking for someone whose name... Hatami did not recognise and Hatami informed him that the place was now the Polanski residence. He advised Manson to try the back alley by which he meant the path that led to the guest house beyond the main house, which is where the caretaker lived, as far as I'm aware. Mm -hmm. He was concerned about the stranger on the property and went down the front walk to confront Manson. Tate then appeared behind Hatami in the house's front door and asked him who was calling. Tammy said that a man was here to look for someone and he and Tate maintained their positions while Manson went to the back of the guest house without word and returned a minute or two later and then left. That evening, Manson returned to the property again and went to the back of the guest house. He entered the enclosed porch and spoke to Altabelli, which was the property owner, I think, that Sharon Tate um, rented off. off. Yeah, there's a lot of characters in this story. Um, I'm not entirely sure that's who he is, but on a documentary, that's you know how they say the name and then they say who they are underneath. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it said like property owner. Okay. Um, so he was just coming out of the shower. Manson asked for Melcher, but Altabelli felt that Manson had come looking for him. He told Manson through the screen door that Melcher had moved to Malibu, falsely stating that he did not know his new address. Altobelli said that he was in the entertainment business, although he had met Manson the previous year at Wilson's home and he was sure that Manson already knew that. He had complimented Manson lukewarmly on some of his musical recordings that Wilson had been playing. He then informed Manson that he was going out of the country the next day and Manson said that he would like to speak with him upon his return. 
Altabelli lied and said that he would be gone for more than a year. Manson explained that he had been directed to the guest house by the persons in the main house and Altabelli expressed that wish that Manson would not disturb his tenants. On May 18th, 1969, Terry Melcher visited Spahn Ranch to hear Manson and the woman sing. Melcher arranged a subsequent visit not long after, during which he brought a friend who possessed a mobile recording unit, but Melcher did not record the group. By June, Manson was telling the family they might have to show blacks how to start Helter Skelter. When Manson tasked Watson, Tex, with obtaining money, supposedly intended to help the family prepare for the conflict, Tex defrauded a black drug dealer named Bernard Crow. Crow responded with a threat to wipe everyone out at Spahn Ranch, and the family countered on July the 1st, 1969, by shooting Crow at Manson's Hollywood apartment. So this is their first official murder. Gary Allen Hinman was a music teacher and PhD student at UCLA. At some point in the late 60s, he befriended members of the Manson family, allowing some to occasionally stay at his home. Manson was under the impression that Hinman had considerable stocks and bonds and owned his property. On the 25th of July 1969, Manson sent followers Bobby Busilio, Mary Brunner and Susan Atkins to Hinman's house. Manson believed that due to Hinman having some financial benefits, he must have money that they can steal to fund an underground bunker. Doomsday prepper. This is very, um, Cloverfield. Yeah. Um, for two days, they held Hinman hostage, but he still refused to turn over his financial assets. During this time, a pissed-off Manson arrived and slashed off Hinman's ear with a sword. On Manson's orders, Bobby stabbed Hinman to death, while one of the members wrote political piggy in Hinman's blood on the wall, as well as drawing the symbol for the Black Panthers. The intent of this message was unsuccessful, as on August 6th, Bobby Bussell was arrested for the murder while out driving Hinman's car. Oh, he's such a fucking idiot. Why would you drive your victim's car around? Like, Oh yeah, I was just thinking, oh, what's wrong with me? I was just thinking, how did he get caught? He's driving yeah. Hinman's car, what a fucking moron. So they must have, like, the police must have noted that his car was missing and then when they've seen it around the area, they've obviously pulled him over for it. Yeah. But also, political piggy, how is that a... How is that an accurate message if you want to start a race war? This is the thing, there's no logic to it. They're just picking these random people. They're not even picking people in politics or, like... That's what I mean, though, like, it's not... People, like, linked to separate parties to the Black Panther. Surely you'd want to make the message obvious. They're just picking white people. Yeah, considering I'm pretty sure the Black Panthers never murdered anyone, as far as I know. Like, a lot of it was peaceful protests. Yeah. Yeah, they did riot and stuff, but no one went out and murdered people in cold blood, as far as I know. In magazine interviews in 1981 and 1998-99, Bussell said that he went to Hinman's to recover money paid to Hinman for drugs, that he had supposedly been bad. He added that Brunner and Atkins, unaware of his intent, went along merely to visit Hinman. Atkins, in her 1977 autobiography, wrote that Manson directly told her, Bussell and Brunner, to go to Hinman's and get the supposed inheritance of $21,000. She said that two days earlier, Manson had told her privately 
that if she wanted to do something important, she could kill Hinman and get his money. Two days after Bobby was arrested, Manson told the family members at Spahn Ranch, now is the time for Helter Skelter. I can imagine him saying it like that as well, like dead calmly. Very like, foreboding. Now is the time. Yeah. Your time is up. So now we come to the most famous night of the Manson family. On the evening of the 8th of August, 1969, Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger and Wotek Frakowski did it. <laughs> All went for dinner at El Coyote, a popular Mexican restaurant in LA. Tate was just two weeks away from giving birth and her friends came to stay with her while her husband, Roman Polanski, was in London filming a movie. At around 10.30pm, Tate and her friends re- returned back to her house. We know this because Abigail Folger took a phone call with her mum when they got home from the restaurant. Abigail Folger is was like an heiress to like a massive coffee company, like mm. Folger Coffee. Um, and Jay Sebring, I think that's how you say his name, he was a um, barber and he like did the hair for like um, Frank Sinatra, all of them. Do you know what I mean? Like all the big stars. Yeah. Um, basically, he was like the trendsetter of barbers back at that time. So on the same night, Manson directed Tex to take Susan Atkins, Linda Kasabian and Patricia Krenwinkel to Terry Melcher's former home at 10.050 Celio Drive and kill everyone there. Due to the previous encounter Manson had at this address, he will have known Terry Melcher didn't live there anymore, but that it was now occupied by Sharon Tate. To Manson, though, it, this didn't matter. He saw the address as a symbol for the LA celebrity and believed that his message would still be understood. Just before midnight, Tex, Atkins, Kasabian and Krenwinkle all drove to the house, parking just outside the entrance to the gate. Tex climbed the telephone pole near the entrance to the gate and cut the, te- the phone line to the house. The murderers backed their car to the bottom of the hill that led to the estate and walked back up towards the driveway entrance. So yeah, they've taken the car from the driveway and parked it back on the main road um, and not on the private road, which led to the the driveway. They thought the gate might be electrified or equipped with an alarm, so they climbed a bushy embankment to the right of the gate and entered the grounds. As they reached the driveway, they came up to a car coming towards them down the hill. Tex ordered the women to lie in the bushes at the side of the road and stepped out in order to halt the oncoming car. This was 18-year-old Stephen Parent, who had been visiting the caretaker of Tate's home. As Tex pointed a gun at him, Stephen began begging for his life, saying that if he let him live, he wouldn't tell anyone he'd seen him there. Tex lunged at him with a knife and giving him a defensive slash root on the palm of his hand that severed tendons and tore the boy's watch off his wrist, and then shot him four times in the chest and the abdomen, killing him. Tex then ordered the women to help him push the car further up the driveway, which at that incline, that was not an easy task. Linda Kasabian was the getaway driver for the group, being the only one with a California driving licence, something that would bring less suspicion to the group if they were all pulled over by the police for any reason after the fact. While following Tex's orders, Linda waited by Stephen's car while he led the other two women up the rest of the driveway and into the property. Manson had earlier told the women to do whatever Tex told them to, 
and it was a warm night in LA and with a lack of AC in the house, Sharon had many other windows open in order to get some fresh air and breeze into the house. So they had ease of access. Yeah. Like, Tex removed the screen and entered through the window and let Atkins and Crimewinkle in through the front door. He whispered to Atkins and woke Prakowski, who was sleeping on the living room couch. Tex kicked him in the head and Prakowski asked him who he was and what he was doing there. Tex replied, I am the devil. I'm here to do the devil's business. On Tex's direction, Atkins found the house's three other occupants with Cranwinkle's help and forced them into the living room. Tex began to tie Tate and Sebring together by their necks with a rope which he had brought with him. He then slung it over the living room ceiling beams. Sebring protested the murder's rough, rough treatment of pregnant Tate, so Tex shot him. Volga was taken momentarily into the back bedroom for her purse and she gave the murderer $70. Tex then stabbed Sebring seven times. Frykowski's hands had been bound with a towel, but he freed himself and began to struggle with Atkins, who stabbed at his legs with a knife. He fought his way to the front door and onto the porch, but Tex caught up with him and struck him over the head with the gun multiple times and stabbed him repeatedly and shot him twice. Kasabian had heard horrifying sounds and moved towards the house from her position on the driveway. She shouted to Atkins and someone was coming in an attempt to stop the murders. Although, I don't know whether that's true or not. Yeah, how could you ever tell? Yeah, I feel like that's just her telling the police that's what she did. Mm. Inside the house, Volga inside the house, Volga escaped from Cranwinkle and fled to a bedroom door to the pool area. Cranwinkle pursued her and caught her on the front lawn where she stabbed her and tackled her to the ground. Tex then helped finish her off. Her assailant stabbed her a total of twenty eight times. Frankowski struggled on the across the lawn, but Watson murdered him with a final flurry of stabbings. Prakowski suffered 51 stab wounds and had also been struck 13 times in the head with the butt of Watson's gun, which bent the barrel and broke off the side of the gun's grip, which was recovered at the scene. In the house, Tate pleaded to be allowed to live long enough to give birth and offered herself as a hostage in an attempt to save the life of her unborn child. But Atkins or Watson or both murdered her, stabbing her 16 times. Manson had told the women to leave a sign, something witchy. So Atkins wrote, Atkins wrote pig on the front door in Tate's blood. I'm not entirely sure why that's witchy, but... <laughs> I thought they witchy, not like boo. Yeah. <laughs> the bodies were discovered at 9.15am the next morning by Sharon Tate's maid, Winifred Chapman. The chaos of the scene sent her running down the driveway and into the street to find help. A neighbour, hearing the noise, called the police. Once they arrived, they reported seeing the look of terror on each of the victims' faces. Too much time had passed between the potential time of death and the discovery of the body, so they were unable to sit here with the unborn child. So yeah, I think there's an amount of time between a pregnant mother dies and the baby can survive. Yeah, it can't I be mean, very long, surely, can it? No, I don't think it... Well, I think it's longer than you think it might be, but I don't know for a fact. Like, mm. I don't think it's just like... A couple of minutes or anything. No. The murder sent shockwaves not only throughout LA but nationwide. But Manson was displeased. Many believed it to be related to drugs, and the panic had failed to ignite the race war that he had predicted. 
Displeased by the previous night's crime and lack of result, the next night, the same group of four, along with two others, Leslie Van Houten and Steve Clem Grogan, went with Manson to 3301 Waverly Drive. Kasabian drove again while Manson gave her directions to the address. The address they were going to was the home of supermarket executive Leno LeBianca. Leno LeBianca and his <laughs> wife Rosemary. The group entered the LeBianca home. Tex and Manson entered, entering through the unlocked back door. Once in the house, Manson woke up Leno LeBianca, who was asleep on the sofa and held him at gunpoint while Tex worked to bind his hands with a leather thong. Oh, leather thong. Drinky. Interesting. <laughs> Rosemary was forced into the living room and pillowcases were put over the couple's head. On Manson's orders, the couple were told that they were being robbed, but would not be harmed if they cooperated. Manson then left, sending Crumwinkle and Van Houten into the house with instructions that the couple are to be killed. Before leaving Spahn Ranch that night, Texa complained to Manson of the inadequacy of the previous night's weapons. Now, sending the women from the kitchen to the bedroom, to which Rosemary LeBianca had been returned, he went to the living room and began stabbing Leno with a chrome-plated bayonet. The first thrust went into the man's throat. It's fucking awful. Horrible, isn't it? But also, of all weapons, I realised they wanted to... What is a bayonet? It's the knife that they put on the end of the guns in, like, World War II. fucking hell. Where did you get that from? Exactly. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, it's awful. Sounds of a scuffle in the bedroom drew Watson there to discover Rosemary keeping the women at bay by swinging the lamp tied to her neck. (laughs) After subduing her with several stab wounds in the bayonet, he returned to the living room and resumed attacking Leno whom he stabbed a total of 12 times with the bayonet. After this attack, the word war was carved into his abdomen by the perpetrator. Van Houten and Crumwinkle were told to kill Rosemary. They stabbed her 41 times in the back and the buttocks. Many of the wounds had been inflicted post-mortem. So it was total overkill, basically. Yeah, 41 stab wounds. That's fucking ridiculous. Oh my God. While Watson cleaned off the bayonet and showered, Crenwinkle wrote Rise and Death to the Pigs on the walls and incorrectly spelt out Helter Skelter on the refrigerator door, all in LeBianca's blood. She gave Leno 14 puncture wounds with an ivory-handled two-tinned carving fork, which she left jutting out of his stomach. She also planted a steak knife in his throat. I feel like this murder is so... I don't know if it's more violent, actually, because the first one was pretty fucking violent. Yeah, I feel like this... Because nothing's really... Well, things are said about the Tate murder, but no one said how frenzied it was. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think I'm basing this all on from watching it from that film, though. Yeah, Um, I think that's... It's, like, loosely based on that last scene, isn't it? Well, it's... Yeah, that last scene's based on it. But I think also the idea that the idea that Watson had a shower in this person's house. Yeah, this is the thing. That's fucked, isn't it? I realised they were all into like LSD and all the good stuff, right? Mm. But it doesn't say whether they were on anything 
while they were doing this. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like, my God. I mean, you would imagine so, surely. Yeah, but I don't think, like... I don't, I don't know. Either way, it's how, fucked. <laughs> but if you see how the women were acting in court afterwards, like... Is that just how they are? They've just been yeah, brainwashed, haven't they? Yeah, and I realise that drugs can have an effect on, like, your mental state and everything, but that's just way too much, like... Yeah. Not everyone's a killer, surely. And there's being a killer and then there's being, like, that, like, taking so much enjoyment out of it. Yeah, that's true. Like, they're not really... It's not as if you're killing someone because they've hurt a loved one, do you know what I mean? Like, Mm. they're doing this because they enjoy it and they're finding any excuse to do it, basically. Yeah. They're crazy. Just saying. I feel like that needs to be, like, my... My little punchline, just saying. Just saying. There's <laughs> another opinion from Lydia. Meanwhile, hoping for a double crime, Manson had gone on to direct Kasabian to drive to the Venice home of an actor acquaintance of hers, another piggy, quote, depositing the other three family members who had departed Spahn with him that evening at the man's apartment building. Manson drove back to Spahn Ranch, leaving them and the Le Bianca killers. Oh my god. <laughs> I can't, it's La Bianca, it's too much. Should we just, should we just explain the situation right now? <laughs> that no. we basically started out remotely recording like we do every week. Like you down in Cambridge, me up near Liverpool. <laughs> and we got halfway through this episode and like, just shit got in the way basically. And you were coming to visit me anyway, so we thought, oh great, we can uh record together for the first time in the same room in actual fact it's just taken me an hour to set it up and figure out how to do it and we have a wall of pillows separating what us. time is it oh my god it's only 10 o'clock how sad but and i've driven yeah, four you, hours today and yeah, i was at work and you've been in work like i'm so tired i can't pronounce the word la bianca i can't fucking do it i'm so tired <laughs> i'm gonna cry so you're getting the second half of this Manson episode from a delirious grace. And if I say it wrong, just let's just fucking go with it. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> anyway. Manson drove back to Span Ran- Ranch. 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 <laughs> leaving them and the La Bianca killers to hitchhike home. Kasabian thwarted this murder by deliberately knocking on the wrong apartment door and waking a stranger. As the group abandoned the murder plan and left, Atkins defecated in the stairwell. I mean... Because what? She's a fucking animal. It's been a long night. Maybe uh, she's got too much fibre in her diet. She's got to go, aren't you? We've all needed a wee in public. Let's be real. Well, I think defecate is shit, Oh, yeah, that's shit, poo-poo. Isn't it? <laughs> poo-poo. I've never pooed in public. Have you? No. My, I can barely poo anywhere other than my own house. <laughs> <laughs> never mind actually in public in a stairwell. <laughs> There's another little tidbit for you. No, no information is too much information on the internet, really, is Lydia it? It has a poo phobia. <laughs> oh. At around 10.30 on the 10th of August, Rosemary LeBianca's son, Frank Struthers... Why the fuck does he have a different name? Just to be difficult. He was the first marriage son. Frank Struthers returned from a camping trip to see all of the window shades at his house drawn and found Leno's boat on the driveway. Suspicious, he called his sister, who came over with her boyfriend. The two men entered the home and found both of the bodies. Carnage. Dun, dun, dun. Absolute carnage. Imagine walking in on that. Fucking horrendous. But also, like, you can also imagine, like, 
him turning up and thinking there's like two things out of order here let's not go inside like if something's freaking me out already yeah do you know what i mean like like if all the window shades are closed at 10 30 at night at my house i wouldn't think that was weird i would have just thought my mum's just gone around and closed all the curtains but you know what i mean but if say there's like one too many lights on i'd be like hang on what's going on here yeah yeah pick up to bed at eight o'clock <laughs> like, yeah Despite the similarities of the crimes, the LAPD didn't initially connect the Hinman, Tate and LaBianca cases. The Sheriff's Department was handling the Hinman case and the LAPD believed that the Tate murder was related to drugs. Investigators in each of the three cases found themselves at a dead end, partly due to the lack of communication between the authorities involved, as we've seen with so many cases before. Mm. Literally every single case. But that's like maybe, an American thing, isn't it? They all. I feel like different we, jurisdictions handle different things, and I feel none like of them we sorted it out quicker. Do you know what I mean? But it's still over in England. It still took a while for each county to um, communicate with each other. Yeah, maybe I'm just. I mean, very I'm critical pretty of America. Much, even now, I know they have the one database all the crimes go into, but if you've got to get specific information from a specific county. It's like a pissing contest. Do you know what I mean? Like, this is our case. But, yeah. Kitty Lutzinger, the girlfriend of Bobby Busolil. Oh, fuck. I nearly got it. Bobby Busolil was arrested for burning machinery in Death Valley near the group's new hideout at Barker Ranch. Lutzinger snitched and informed the detectives that Susan Atkins has also been involved in the Hinman murder for which her boyfriend was doing time for. Snitches get stitches. She's a snitch. She did not like Susan. She would not survive prison. I mean, I don't think I like Susan either, so I don't blame her. I'd snitch. I think I'd probably be too scared of Susan to snitch on her. Yeah, that's true. Like, she was the fucking psycho. Yeah, she was the crazy one. on the 2nd of august 1969 the lapd told press it had ruled out any connection between the tate and labianca homicides it's a big uh statement to make there Hmm. i bet they fucking regret saying that i know the crimes of the manson family didn't stop at the labianca murders on the 16th of August, the Sheriff's Office raided the Spahn Ranch and arrested Manson and 25 others as suspects in a major auto theft ring. That had been stealing Volkswagen Beetles. Are you <laughs> Sorry. Okay? It's you know, a major auto theft ring and you're stealing Volkswagen Beetles. <laughs> like... Yeah, because he loves the Beetles. He can't get enough. He's probably got a collection of literal Beetles. <laughs> Of all cars you can steal and He's like, probably got bobbleheads of John Lennon in his fucking bedroom. <laughs> I mean, it's just. You like, can't get enough of it, Lydia. It's not going to make much money. Like, there's such a common car. Like, maybe that's why they did it, because it was a common car. Anyway, okay. Back to the point. So, they'd been sealing Volkswagen Beetles and converting them into June buggies. Weapons were seized, but because the warrant had been misdated, the group was released a few days later. Bloody paperwork. Still working separately from the Tate team, 
the Labianca team checked with the sheriff's office in mid-October about possible similar crimes. Still working separately from the Tate team, the Labianca team checked with the sheriff's office in mid-October about possible similar crimes. They learned of the Hinman case, and they also learned that the Hinman detectives had spoken to Busalil's girlfriend, Kitty Lutzinger. She had been arrested a few days earlier with the members of the Manson family. So while she was in custody on car theft charges, Susan Atkins boasted to another inmate about her participation in the Tate and LaBianca murders. Of course she did. Like, absolute narcissist. You just can't keep your mouth shut, you know? (laughs) I feel like I'm only saying this because I know she's dead, so she won't come in ahead of me. Yeah, true. But I do, I do think, like, maybe they could have got away with this if they just shut the fuck up. Oh, yeah, it. if they didn't, like, both so They probably much could have actually just never been caught. So many other people would have died as well. Like... Yeah, that's true, that would be Do you know what I mean? They w- w- would have run rings, because there were so many of them in the group as well. Yeah. So if they sent a different four people to each place mm. none of the fingerprints are going to match up yeah do you know what I mean anyway let's stop plotting murder <sighs> so while she was in custody on car theft charges Susan Atkins boasted to another inmate about her participation in the Tate and LaBianca murders the inmate reported the claims and Atkins not only confessed to the crime but agreed to testify against the others if the death penalty was dropped Atkins was booked for the Hinman murder after she told sheriff's detectives that she had been involved in it. Transferred to the Sybil Brand Institute, a detention centre in Monterey Park, California, she had begun talking to bunkmates Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham, whom she gave accounts of the events for which she had been involved in. I mean, if someone's going into detail about the murders they committed and the frenzied attacks, I don't think I'd sleep a wink. Especially if they were my bunkmate. (laughs) On December 1st, 1969, acting on the information from these sources, LAPD announced warrants for the arrest of Watson, Krumwinkle and Kasabian in the Tate case. The suspect's involvement in the LaBianca murders was noted. Manson and Atkins, already in custody, were not mentioned. The connection between the LaBianca case and Van Alton, who was also among those arrested near Death Valley, had also not yet been recognised. Before long, physical evidence such as Krumwinkle's and Watson's fingerprints, which had been collected by the LAPD at Celio Drive, was augmented by evidence recovered by the public. The trial began on 15th of June 1970. The prosecution's main witness was Kasabian, who, along with Manson, Atkins and Krumwinkle, had been charged with seven counts of murder and one of conspiracy. Since Kasabian, by all accounts, had not participated in the killings, she was granted immunity in exchange for testimony that detailed the nights of the crimes. Originally, a deal had been made with Atkins in which the prosecution agreed not to seek the death penalty against her in exchange for her grand jury testimony, on which the indictments were secured. Once Atkins repudiated that testimony, the deal was withdrawn. So basically they fucked her royally over. But I feel like that's that's a fucking as well, though. Yeah, I think it might be, but I yeah. mean, who really cares? Does anyone actually care for this woman? Oh, no, but still, like, it can easily go down as, like, mistrial or miscarriage of justice, can't it? Like, yeah, but they probably, if she ever like tried to put in a thing like a complaint or like a, what's it called? 
when you get money like a compensation mm. thing they're just like shut up no but that's what i mean though like if she had done mm. i feel like it would have got overturned oh yeah definitely because that's not the way you do it no like, yeah because Van Alten had participated only in the La Bianca killings, she was charged with two counts of murder and one of conspiracy. The 24th of July saw the first day of testimony. Manson appeared in court with an X carved onto his forehead. He issued a statement that he was considered inadequate and incompetent to speak or defend himself and had X'd himself from the establishment's world. He's such a wanker. I'm just... <laughs> He's just a like, what so does he think that's doing for his fucking public image? So basically, because they wouldn't let him defend himself because they didn't, they didn't think he, he was, was mentally inadequate. Sound. I mean, I mean, yeah. he's just proved their fucking. Yeah, point. that's what I mean. He he then does more. No one in their right mind. He's me- not mentally sound. Into their head. That's just not normal <laughs> behavior. It's I want to know how he did it. Just with a fucking pen or something. Oh, oh my god, with a compass probably. Oh shit! They yeah. were vicious, weren't they? Mm. Um, in the days that followed, the other family members at the trial, including the female defendants, followed suit, branding themselves with the mark, which is where that infamous photo comes from. Yeah. Throughout the trial, Atkins and her co-defendants attempted to disrupt proceedings. They sang songs Manson had written as they were led in and out of the courtroom. Atkins giggled, snickered and shouted insults. Family members loitered around the courtroom and held vigils on the pavement outside. Some members wore sheathed hunting knives that, although in plain view, were carried legally. Later, Manson and his co-defendants turned up to court with shaved heads. Again, the followers within the courthouse and outside followed suit not long after. I think that's the bit that creeps me out so much about this case. I would never never love someone enough to shave my head. No, it's not even that. It's... I don't know if you've seen it, but it's the videos of the three women. They like they've got like pretty, like almost like doll like dresses on and their hair in plaits, and they're like skipping in and out of the courtroom and yeah. singing, and it's just so fucking creepy. Like yeah, I have seen that. It's one thing to be afraid of someone breaking into my house to kill me. It's another thing to have three women dressed like that yeah, skipping towards fun. me and singing. Why like... are we doing this now? Now I'm not going to be able to sleep. <laughs> Their tactics did little to affect the trial's outcome. The prosecution argued the motive of the killings was to trigger Manson's race war, with the case hinging largely on the testimony of Kasabian. The crime scene's bloody white album references were correlated with testimony about Manson's predictions that the murders that black people would commit at the outset of Helter Skelter would involve the writings of pigs on walls in victims' blood. The defence, meanwhile, rested after three days without calling a single witness, something which angered Manson and his followers. As the trial concluded, with closing arguments pending, Van Houten's defence lawyer disappeared during a weekend trip. His body was found months later. I mean, it's a bit of a coincidence, isn't it? Yeah. On January 25th, 1971, the jury returned guilty verdicts against the four defendants on each of the 27 separate counts against them. Atkins, Krenwinkel and Van Houten testified the murders had been conceived as copycat versions of the Hinman murder, for which Atkins now took credit. The killings, they said, were intended to draw suspicion away from Bobby Bucille, 
by resembling the crime which he had been jailed for. This plan had supposedly been the work of and carried out under the guidance of not Manson, but someone allegedly in love with Bussalil, Linda Kasavian. Oh, obviously, it's going to be oh, the one woman who's had the least involvement. There has to be a love story. Couldn't have possibly it's not been a real Manson. Story. Yeah. Midway through the penalty phase, Manson shaved his head and trimmed his beard into a fork. He told the press, I am the devil, and the devil always has a bald head. Well, why haven't they just shaved it now, Manson? In what the prosecution regarded as belated recognition of their imitation of Manson only proved his domination. The female defendants refrained from shaving their heads until the jurors retired to weigh the state's request for the death penalty. So basically to prove that Manson didn't have a hold over them. They held off a few yeah, days. Yeah, but it's too to fucking late head. because you already murdered exactly. a bunch of people and carved crosses into your forehead. So, exactly. I mean... Would you rather a carved cross into your forehead what or do you a fucking, head? Yeah, what like, do you want from me? Yeah. You're obsessed with him. In 1971, Manson followers, Catherine Chair, Lynette from Dennis Rice, Steve Grogan and... Ruth Ann Morehouse were convicted for plotting to kill Barbara Hoyt, a former family member, to prevent her from testifying at the, at the trial. Hoyt Kasabian and Paul Walker all testified against Manson. Catherine Chair later claimed that Manson had threatened to harm her if she did not testify on his behalf. The effort to exonerate Manson via a copycat scenario failed. On March 29, 1971, the jury returned verdicts of, the de- of death against all four defendants on all counts. On April 19, 1971, Judge Older sentenced the four to death. Manson followers Bruce Davies and Steve Grogan were convicted in 1972 for the murders of Hinman and Shear. In February 1972, the death sentences of all five parties were automatically reduced to life in prison by People v. Anderson in which the California Supreme Court abolished the death penalty in that state. After his return to prison, Manson's rhetoric and hippie speeches held little sway. Before the conclusion of Manson's Tate-LeBianca trial, a reporter for the Los Angeles Times tracked down Manson's mother. Remarried and living in the Pacific Northwest, the former Kathleen Maddox claimed that, in childhood, her son had suffered no neglect. He had even been pampered by all the women who surrounded him. For decades after the killings, Manson remained in the news, giving interviews from prison. His case remains unique because he never actually killed anyone himself. Instead, he used his powers of persuasion and manipulation to convince his followers to do so. Charles Manson died of a heart attack and complications from colon cancer on November 19, 2017. He was 83 years old. I've got a couple of points. Okay. Like always. Go on then. Obviously, his mother is going to say that he was pampered oh, yeah no but to say that he was wrong. pampered by women yeah that's no different like is that where the maybe he, he because he was pam if he was pampered as a child he learned how to manipulate that and he also affection. he also probably thought this is how i want to live the rest of my life yeah like women only uh, only exist to serve me essentially and is he the only person to have been convicted for murder for when he's not actually committed the murder. Do you know what I mean? No, because it's like joint enterprise, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, no, because they were they they were tried on different counts, weren't they? Even though they were all in the same court, 
They all had different counts against them. Do you mean they don't have joint enterprise in America? Yeah, but didn't we have this argument when we recorded the first half about when they see us, the boys and when they see us? They were in the, they were in the court together, but they were tried separately. Yeah, that's what I mean, though. So surely he's the, maybe one of the only people to have been tried and convicted of murder when he's not actually physically committed the murder. No, that's what I'm saying. So the guys, like, for example, the guys in When They See Us. Yeah. That, she didn't die, but say she did die. Mm. Only one blow would kill someone, eventually. Yeah. You might all take part in the beating, but one of you killed her. Yeah. So the rest of you are in for John Enterprise. I think that's the same. Mm. So I just wasn't sure been... whether they officially had joint Enterprise Like, in Like when that, when, um... Rosemary LeBianca got stabbed 41 times. One of those stab wounds killed her. Yeah. You could never know really which one. And you never know which of the killers actually did that final blow. Yeah. But you're still going to charge every single person that was there Yeah, that but night. what I mean is, he wasn't even at the scene when the murders were happening. Yeah, I guess. You know he was I mean? at the first like he... one. Yeah. He was at um, the Tate one, wasn't he? Um, No. Yeah. He wasn't at, he wasn't at the Tate murder. Was he not on the second one, though, as well, when he told her he to He turned drive? up, yeah, and he turned up at the, um, I suppose it was a kidnapping, wasn't God, it? I was so exhausted. Manson, what's going of on? Of Hinman. He turned up at the Hinman murder, but he never, he wasn't there when Hinman died, like, when he was murdered. Well, I don't Do you know what I mean? Then. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe he is. Who fucking knows? Maybe someone else knows. Like, yeah, so... That's the creepy case of the Manson family. I feel like a lot, some of it was what a lot of people already know, but other bits weren't. Um, because I feel like it's I never been covered like correctly. I, yeah, I actually feel like I don't really didn't ever really know that much on him. Yeah, maybe there's I just not a really ever... good. There's not like a really good documentary on Netflix, is there? About it? That's no, they need to do it. like a specific one, don't they? That would be good, like a four parter. They should have done it like when he was alive. Like I know it's <laughs> you can't really do anything about it now, but like yeah, that would have been good. Because I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have. Um... Yeah, he probably would have jumped at the opportunity. Yeah, Netflix, yeah, right? he wouldn't have stopped that interview, would he? No, but. I mean, it's interesting to learn, isn't it? And I think um, Susan Atkins is the only one that's dead as well, out of the women. I think what's really interesting is it's it's obviously in our cult... What's the word? Season? Theme. Theme. Yeah. But it's so different to, like, Jonestown and um, Waco. Yeah. Like, it started off as this, like, hippie movement, didn't it? And, like, free love and everything. But they ended up being, like, Manson's personal hippie. Yeah, like, it was just something to feed his psychotic behaviour. Like, it's very interesting to see how people can be so easily manipulated and influenced, isn't Mm. it? Especially if you're perhaps taking certain psychedelic substances. But it's weird as well because I feel like people who join cults or they join groups that they don't realise are cults. Yeah, so they join down to religion, don't they? That Yeah. It's a way for them to like... Yeah, but he's just like preaching shit. Yeah. Like he was useless. At least Jonestown, they thought they were doing good. Like like giving back some to the world. They were fucking happy. They loved yeah. it there. So we've basically got our friend coming to visit us tomorrow and 
She can somewhat be a bit of a scaredy cat, can't we're she? We're going to scare the shit out of yeah. her. Yeah. So what? Because... I feel like the case that we're going to do isn't going to scare her enough, though. No, but I've done the reading for it. You need to find some photos. We're going to show her photos, and we're going to what put the photos on instagram i guess yeah you probably probably put it on the stories so then, or something you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna find the video of the three women coming in and out of court and just freak everyone the fuck out because <laughs> i can't be the only one who's freaked out by this <laughs> like, honestly um so yeah we're doing the willowbrook school state school, state yeah. school yeah well it's willowbrook institution wasn't it um which was as far as I'm aware... What they based... Yeah, American Horror Story Asylum on. Yeah. And I feel like, you know... That was the best season, yeah, in my humble opinion. The you know best how season. she goes in as a reporter and stuff? That's a true story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, don't know whether I've it's to do it. with Willow, Willowbrook yeah, or another yeah, one. Yeah, is it yeah, with it Willowbrook? Is. Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's that same woman, but there is in the reading that I did yeah there was a woman that's well it happened quite a few times actually that's how they got in they were reporters and they pretended to be yeah from, like mental health institutions yeah. going and seeing um, these children who were being abused but I want to try and find some like horror stories with it as well yeah because I basically I did like factual research so yeah you need to get us like, with the gore go through reddit yeah. youtube all the good yeah, yeah. Do you want to talk about your social media? Because it cut off last week. Oh, uh, yeah, it cut off because I turned my computer off because I had a massive fucking brain fart. <laughs> it's and I just out. turned my computer off halfway through the podcast and thought, I don't need the computer. Yeah, that's why the episode last week was so blunt and coming off because yeah, I just we couldn't, I couldn't just, fix it. I didn't know how. I'm then, still a novice. Do you want to re-record the outro? No. Do I fuck? Sorry. <laughs> I've been in bed for the last six hours. I'm not getting up now. Um, yeah, what... Um, What's our Instagram? Everything with the girls. Yeah. And then that is also how you find... Oh, well, I guess I was going to say that's how you find us. But if, you f- if you're listening to this now, then you fucking found us. Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and then what's your Instagram? Lydia Healy. Yeah, Lydia underscore Healy. And then mine is um, just conspiracy queen underscore. I think it's just one underscore. Or is it two underscores? I no, I think it's just one. You'll find it. It's got a little queen on the picture. That's basically that's where I post all my conspiracy stuff. So stuff that I think is too annoying to put on the everything with the girls page, I will put on there because I mean I'm in a big deep Madeleine McCann hole at the moment. I can't get out of it. It was in the newspapers again yesterday. Did you see it? Did, I, do, I didn't they're see it, but I up. saw that the girls in Red Handed are doing a live stream with it. Oh, no way. They're digging back up um, this area in Hanover, in Germany. Really? Where that guy was. You know the guy that's in prison who yeah, they think is yeah. a suspect now? Yeah, they're digging up around where he used to live, but... I'm still like... convinced she's in America in a paedophile sex ring. I'm sorry. No, um, I don't think she... Like, as awful as it sounds, I don't think she's alive. Even if she, I don't there think you would ever. If she's dead, around it. if she's dead, you will never find her body now. No. Surely, that's like literally finding a needle in a haystack. Yeah, but but you know. I, it's, I suppose it's like with the Moors murders, isn't it? They didn't yeah, find, find boy, a lot of those find bodies. bodies. Yeah, that young boy. Yeah. Anyway, that's that. Have a good week. In a bit. Later's. Bye. Bye. Bye.